From the Thinking Out Loud studios, it's the Thinking Out Loud podcast with Kevin and Kyle, the podcast that exists to help you navigate the culture of today from a biblical perspective and to help you grow in your relationship with God. God has commissioned and called you to be a light in this culture. The only way you can do that is to know the truth. No matter what circumstance you're facing, no matter what season of life that you're in, if you truly want to find success in that season, you're going to have to go back to the simple question of what does God say about me in this moment? There's no shortage of information in this culture, but there is a shortage of truth. Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. My name is Kevin Wilson. And I am Kyle Wentzel. And we are excited today to be back with you for another week of our podcast. And just so grateful to all of you guys who are listening all over the country and many countries around the world. Here's what I want you to do. And I always say this at the beginning of the show. If you are listening to us on an Apple device, could you scroll all the way down to the bottom? There's a place there where you can rate and review the show. So please do that for us. And then could you do me a big, big favor? I don't care where you're listening to us at. So whatever app you're listening to, streaming app, if there's a place there for you to go on and rate us or review us or follow us or subscribe, why don't you do that for us? And we would greatly appreciate that. Well, we have got an awesome show for you today. We're excited. We have a special guest with us today. His name is Brian Birdwell. He is Senator Brian Birdwell. He is a native Texan. He is a senator in the District 22 and just a great patriot. This person is what I would call a patriot of America. And so I'm going to read just a little bit of his bio. His bio is so long, folks, you would not be able to, <laughs> you would, you, we'd be here all day, but I just want to, I just want to read just a little bit of his bio here. In 1984, Brian was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Army, where he served for 20 years. He has had numerous training deployments and two operational deployments. In 1990, he deployed to Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, where he was awarded the Bronze Star for an exceptional meritorious achievement. And then in 1998, and that was in 1998, in 2001, Brian was serving on the Department of the Army Staff at the Pentagon as the military aide to the Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for Installation Management. And on September 11, 2001, we all know that day, and this is one of the, I, I will never forget that day. I think everyone who was, who was alive know where they were. When the September 11, 2001 happened where the Twin Towers in New York and also the Pentagon was hit and we had another plane crash in Pennsylvania. But Senator Birdwell has his own story here. He was actually in the Pentagon and Airlines Flight 77, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed literally yards away from his second floor Pentagon office. He was critically wounded, severely burned, and had to go through 39 operations. And just a miraculous story of God's grace and his mercy to him. And we're excited to have Senator Birdwell on with us today. Senator, thanks so much for coming on the Thinking yeah, Out Loud thank podcast. You. 
Hey, it's my treat, Pastor. Great to join you and Kevin and Kyle to tell a great story of the Lord's grace, exactly as you said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, really quick, Senator, I got a a question to ask you really quick. First of all, thank you for your service. Happy Um, to have given it. Happy to have given it. Yeah, absolutely. Are you a Longhorns fan or not? Are you horns up or are you horns down? (laughs) Um, Well, um, Baylor is my largest private employer in my district. Okay. Uh, I graduated from Lamar down in uh, Beaumont. And so, uh, but those of us at Baylor, I generally root for the Longhorns if they're playing somebody out of state. But in the state of Texas, uh, I have one staff member that uh, just graduated from UT last year. And I call them the, you know, she's got a Longhorn thing on her desk. And uh-huh. I, I, I don't call, go up and talk to her and say, oh, how are the Longhorns doing today? I, I say, how are the worshipers of the pagan cow god doing today? You know, <laughs> and so, you know, and so anyway, um, but it's, it's all teasing men in good fun. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we always root for the Baylor Bears. My wife, Mel, is a K-State graduate. So yeah. Big 12 football is a, and my son went to Texas Tech. He graduated from Tech. Oh, few nice. years back, so yeah. so uh, Big Twelve football is usually uh, a family feud kind of a thing. So, well, football football is uh, being a football player. As I grew up, I realized real fast that Texas football is different than American football everywhere else. So, yeah. I just had to ask, man. But really, thank yeah. you so much yeah. for being on this show. Yeah, awesome. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say too, and we'll talk about this a little bit at the end of the show as well. But uh, the Bergwells is all—they're also an author of "Refined by Fire: A Family's Triumph of Love and Faith," and it just chronicles their this life-changing ordeal that we're going to talk about today. And you can go pick that up on Amazon. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first of all, I want to say, Senator, thank you so so much for your service to our country all the many years that you've served us and continue to serve us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Happy, happy to have given it. I, I, uh, I wouldn't trade it. You know, some of the experiences were really hard and yeah. we'll certainly talk about one of those, but, but I wouldn't trade it. It's yeah. I just, there's such an emotional attachment to the national yeah. anthem and, yeah. and I very much appreciate you saying thank you. And uh, you, ha- you owe, you are owed a, you're welcome. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. And I would just say to the people of Texas that listen, you guys are just blessed to have him uh, representing you in District 22. It's just it's amazing. So let's jump in, Brian, Senator, as we talk about September 11th of 2001. Take us back to that morning before you even get to work. Like what, what was that morning like for you? What, what was happening that morning? Well, like any morning I was, uh, I was, as you'd mentioned in the bio, I was the military aide to the deputy assistant chief of staff for installation management. That's a nice big title for chief donut getter. I'm a Lieutenant (laughs) Colonel and that makes me the most junior man in the office, but I was the aide to our deputy. We have a a principal, which is a two-star uniform, major general van Antwerp. And then the deputy was a civilian on the SES scale, the senior executive service. That's a civilian flag officer. I was the aide to the deputy. Colonel Williams is uh, General Van Antwerp's aide. I get into work. I catch the bus uh, about 530 because the the commute in D.C. is its own Olympic sport uh, training. It is. Uh, is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, you know, I catch the first bus. I get to the Pentagon uh, about 630. And by seven o'clock, I'm in uniform at the desk, 20, 30 minutes before Miss Minnie gets in. 
make sure that her day is, you know, she's got what she needs. So I'm, as Colossians tells us, serving the earthly masters as if serving the Lord. My duty was to make her day efficient, whether that meant getting her a sandwich, going to the ATM machine, organizing her inbox, screening phone calls, whatever it might have been. So I get to the building again, 630 in uniform at seven. That week, the installation management, the Army staff director for installation management is essentially the Army's proponent staff director, staff director for what a city manager would do. Everything that makes an Army installation its own city, you know, Fort Hood, Fort Bliss, you know, any Army installation uh, or garrison around the world, things that make it its own city, you know, housing, motor pools, facility equipment, uh, recreation, those things that, that make it its own city, we had proponency for. That week, that Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, of course, September 11th was the Tuesday of that week, all the garrison commanders from around the country and around the world had come into D.C. for our annual data dump. So three days of briefings, discussion, where policy was going, those kind of things. So Colonel Williams takes General Van Antwerp and Miss Minnig over to the Doubletree, which is across 395, the spur there right by the Pentagon, between Pentagon City and the, and the Pentagon itself. And then Sandy and Cheryl and I settled in for what we expected to be a slow day with both the principal and the deputy out because our duty is to be a, a service to them. We're manning phones and catching up on work that gets interrupted a lot by, by tending to what they might need. At about 8.50, you know, 9 o'clock, Sandy's daughter, Sam, worked up in New York, uh, up in New York City. And I sit right outside Miss Minnig's desk or her, her office. She sits on the opposite end of the of the elongated rectangular office area that we're in. And we're in an E-ring office that overlooks the outside of the Pentagon. So the E-ring is the outermost ring of the Pentagon. And we're in the, the side of the ring that faces outwardly rather than the side of the E-ring that looks at the D-ring, which is the second outermost ring. Sandy comes up, says, hey, you know, my daughter Sam says, you know, the World Trade been hit by a plane. And we did you know, Pastor, what, what, you know, you and Kyle were doing nearly 20 years ago and everybody else, whether it's the TV, the radio, we went into Miss Minnig's office, I turned the TV on, you see the North Tower, the, the tower with the antenna mast, the first tower hit, that huge hole and that just petroleum-based black putrid smoke pouring out of the building. And, you know, when we walked into Miss Minnig's office, it was, you know, we're going to, turn something on that's like a car chase in LA. Mm. But when you turn that on and you see the size of the hole, and I mean, and it's kind of like several years ago uh, when uh, uh, Captain uh, uh, Sullenberger landed that U.S. air flight out in the Hudson. Yeah. There's that little voice in the back of our head telling us, you know, the commentators are calling it a tragic accident, but there's that little voice going, you know, that's beautiful weather. There's no issue with the weather. And if I've got a catastrophic failure, just like Captain Sullenberger, I'm going to put that plane somewhere where I'm not going to, you know, whether it's the Hudson out in the Atlantic, if I've got any control. And to hit that tower so dead on, Sandy and Cheryl and I were just that, you know, that yeah. this doesn't smell right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Not that we knew anything. It's just, yep. you know, and then. In just a matter of moments, as we're watching the, the North Tower and the smoke, the second plane that everybody sees on live television, Flight 175, crashes into the South Tower. The second tower hit, but the first one to collapse at nearly 600 miles an hour. And that would confirm that this was not a, 
a normal day in our nation's life. We just knelt down and, and Sandy and Cheryl, and, and you know, I just led a quick prayer that said, Lord, you know, we love our first responders, but you're the one that's going to be doing the bulk of the, the life-saving today. As constricted as a city as New York is, and it's, you know, the two largest office buildings, this is a challenge of great rigor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that our that our first responders in the in the fire department and police departments are going to respond to. At about nine thirty five, you know, I had my morning coke, that jolt of caffeine that uh, mm-hmm. that all of us, uh, you know, peons in the Pentagon, you know, uh, <laughs> have to, um, you know, to get that jolt of caffeine. I I needed to step out and go to the men's restroom. I told Sandy and Cheryl I was going to step out and I'd be back momentarily. Mm-hmm. To give your listeners a, a good view, the, again, the E-ring is the outer ring of the Pentagon. When I step out into the main hallway and take a right, I will walk through what is the impact point and what collapses 27 minutes after impact. Because the men's restroom is just on the other side in the, at the intersection of the fourth quarter. The corridors are the spokes that connect the rings. So I go out of the E-ring just inside to the corridor where the men's restroom is. I come out and I'm about to turn right to go back to my office. So my window where my desk is, is on the left side of the impact point. The window I'm behind at impact is just to the right of after it collapses. Mm-hmm. So you get a, a pretty good visual mm-hmm. that I walked through had I, had I gone to the restroom later. I would have been in the path of the plane at impact, or had I come out of the restroom sooner, I would have been in the path of the plane or back in my office. The left engine of the 757 goes just caddy corner underneath Miss Minnig's window. Mm. Sandy and Cheryl are killed. We believe Sandy instantaneously, Cheryl 30. It's pretty graphic stuff to think about, but the pathology shows an inhalation injury with her remains. Sandy had mm. clean lungs. Cheryl mm. did not. So there's that assumption is, is that they were intaking mm-hmm. yeah. the, the toxic, just like I was in the fourth quarter, at that intersection of the fourth quarter in the E-ring. This was not like uh, one of Governor Schwarzenegger's uh, action-adventure movies, where you you hear the sound and, oh, I better run and, and try to, t- I mean, it, I spent most of my 20 years in heavy forces, big tanks, big artillery, a lot of loud sounds. Mm-hmm. And I have a slight indication that, you know, in Revelation, it talks about the sounding of the trumpet. Oh, That's yeah. got to be a pretty loud trumpet for the whole world to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is what, I mean, you hear the impact. I mean, it's deafening. And then in the next nanosecond, as I'm stepping while hearing that sound, then there's the vacuum, the concussion, and the blast, because I'm only, in straight line distance, I'm only about 15 to 20 yards from where the nose of the aircraft makes impact with the building. By mm-hmm. God's grace, by the Lord's grace, I'm the only survivor in the E-ring at the crash site. Wow. I am set ablaze, and there are three pains and emotions that I will deal with that, in, in just seconds, minute or two, but seem to last an eternity. First is the physical pain of the burns. I don't know if the podcast shows me on the interview or it's just the audio, but my fingertips, my arms from fingertip to armpit on both arms are completely grafted. Mm. You can see the, the grafted skin. 
Sure. My facial area, the, the eye sockets, the ears are artificial cartilage to form a, an artificial helix. My neck, my thumbs have been, uh, it's my original bone in there, but because of the burns to my hands, the webbing between the thumb and the palm was burned away. So mm. Dr. Jordan had to go in, make an incision between the palm and thumb bone of each thumb, pull the thumb bone out, put a like an L-shaped brace in there, put a graft over it to give me something of an opposing thumb. I mean, wow. I can't make a complete fist because um, mm. of the scar tissue in there, but, but I'm very functional. Sure. Um, but otherwise, it was like, instead of having hands, I had these two lobster claws for mm. the first couple of months of my recovery in the hospital as they were reconstructing me. The most immediate life-threatening injury is not the external burns. It's actually the inhalation injury because I am breathing in the aerosolized jet fuel, that black putrid smoke that moments ago I was talking about the people in the World Trade Center that were above the crash site that were breathing the same thing. And so as I'm burning on the outside, I am slowly drowning on the inside because the lungs do the same thing that the flesh does when you touch a, a hot grill or pan on the stove and you get that blister that, that forms when you mm -hmm. touch that. Well, that's yep. what's happening in my lungs. My lungs are blistering as I am burning on the outside. Yeah. Um, and I was a 60% total body burn with about 40% being third degree burns. So I've got wow. big chunks of my back, my arms that were third-degree burns, and a third-degree burn requires complete grafting. The second pain and emotion is the one that, that really defines that feeling of terrorism, that sense of panic that grabs your heart when you realize that you're not just facing a life-threatening injury, but that your ability to escape it is null and void. That mm. in that hallway, I went from a well-lit hallway that I was very familiar with to the blackness, the darkness, and the mm. only light being the ambient glow of flame that's consuming me and what's around me. I mean, because when the plane makes impact, 3,000 gallons of jet fuel is being sprayed and ignited in the building. Um, and of course, exploding on the outside at, at the same time. So that panic that grabs your heart when you realize you know you're dying. Mm -hmm. And that, and the Lord creates every one of us with that, that whether it's survival instinct or the zest for life, mm -hmm. he creates every one of us with that. And, you know, in that, in those moments that I tried to get up, I mean, I got tossed around like a rag doll with the initial explosion. I try to get to my, get to my feet. I mean, stop, drop and roll. That's good policy. But in this situation, it's irrelevant because mm -hmm. you go from. One moment you're in a 72 degree corridor and the next minute you're, you're in the oven. And I mean, it's so instantaneously, that twinkling out of an eye kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get to my feet and I come to that realization that the panic and the chaos and the, and look, the physical pain of the burns is bad, but it was very secondary to the emotional pain mm. of knowing I was dying. Yeah. The physical mm. pain wasn't registering the way these are my last moments mm, mm. And, the, and the desire to live and trying to get up. And I eventually came to that point where because of the, the concussion and the impact of the, of the aircraft and the, the vacuum and the like, my sense of balance is destroyed. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I'm stumbling and fumbling and, and, and on the light. And I eventually just cry out in a very loud voice, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. It was not a Lord save me from this calamity. Mm-hmm. It was that recognition that I knew that this was how I was dying and I had reconciled myself to my death. Mm-hmm. I had stepped over that line from the, the chaos and the calamity and the panic of struggling to survive to stepping over the line that says, okay, Lord, I got it. This is a horrible, ghastly way to be called into eternity. But in that moment, Pastor, I went from that chaos and the calamity. And I mean this, there's just no language in the, no words in the English language to give you the description, but the, the intensity of the description. But I went from the intensity of the chaos and that panic to the intensity of the peace that passes all understanding, that quiet, mm. that calm, and the confidence of knowing where I was going to spend eternity as I collapsed to the floor and waited to die. Mm. And as I lay there, I thought about that third pain and emotion. And that's the, that permanency and the finality of death. Because as I laid there with that peace of knowing, I'm soon to have that feeling of the soul departing the body and be at the, at the Lord's throne, you know, to be apart from the body is to be joined with the Lord. Yeah. And I was waiting for that feeling. And, and, you know, and even in our death, our humanity shows through because I was like, come on, Lord, let's get on with this thing. <laughs> my impatience. Sure. And I could feel liquid running down the left side of my face. And in that, that pain of finality, I thought about Mel and Matt and how that morning when I, you know, gave Mel a kiss on the cheek, getting out of bed and getting cleaned up and ready to go. And with your 10 year or your 12 year old, you just. You just open the door and look at him. You don't wake him up at five in the morning, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right. um, and just looked at Matt. And that if I'd have known that day I was walking out to what in that hallway I knew was my death, I would have said goodbye to Mel and Matt with much greater rigor than the usual. I'll see you tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that liquid I could feel on my left side of my face was cold. And because I wasn't feeling that feeling of the soul departing the body, though, I was emotionally and spiritually ready to go because it yeah in 1971 i had given my heart to the lord in fact during a james robison uh, uh crusade mm. uh, out in california and so i knew where i was going to spend eternity but i i opened my eyes and in the hallway the smoke is filling up the ceiling there's still some fire burning around me but the sprinkler system had engaged and put the flame out that was consuming me now that may just sound like well that's what the sprinkler system is supposed to do the difference is, is that when that plane makes penetration at, at first and second floor level, and it penetrates three of the five rings, it breaks all those water pipes mm-hmm. that carry that water yep. in those three rings. And so when the crash, the plane crashed, there's a structural damage area and then a slightly larger burned damaged area. But the reason they had to replace almost that entire wedge was because of flooding. So I'm, I'm, I collapse under a sprinkler head that's still intact, but more importantly, and I believe miraculously, has the wa- sufficient water pressure to be able to pump out water that's yeah. uh, to, to extinguish. me. But as I open my eyes, I can see in the distance, and it looked a lot like what you would imagine if I'm a ship at sea, I can't see the bulb of the lighthouse, but I can see its reflection off the surface of the ocean. So in the distance toward the A ring, the A ring is the innermost ring of the Pentagon. So again, I'm in the at the intersection of the 
fourth quarter, which is the spoke and the E-ring, and I can see down toward the A-ring, there's some light on in the distance, but I see more the reflection off the tile. So that gives me some directional control because before in the struggle, in the darkness, trying to get up, and when you don't know where you're going, which right. ways to safety, which ways to danger, that's the panic because mm-hmm. it's, I'm burning to death and I've got, I have no idea. I mean, it's, it frankly is what we know that the non-believer experiences at death in being apart from God in darkness. Mm-hmm. And so I use the wall that I've been blown up against as a third and fourth point of contact. The uniform that day was just short sleeve shirt, t-shirt, my uh, really stylish polyester green army pants with the black piping down the side, my -hmm. leather belt, a brass belt buckle, name tag, my regimental crest, and then my security badge. When I get up and you put my hands up against the wall, it's still pretty dark where I'm at, but I'm working my way, shuffling. I cover about 25, 30 yards in the condition that I'm about to describe. I've been skinned alive because there are chunks hanging off my arms. Because as I'm working my way down the corridor, though it's still burning down at the crash site and smoke is filling up, as I am moving toward the light, I'm getting more visual of what my, what my body looks like. Yeah. I can already feel my facial area starting to tighten like a, an overinflated balloon from the swelling. Because mm-hmm. my eyes are getting really puffy. You know, like in the Rocky movie, you know, when he, mm-hmm. he's 15th round with Apollo Creed, but it didn't take 15 rounds to get here, you know. And so my eyes are swelling. I can see the chunks hanging off. My access badge is still hanging on my, the front of my shirt, but it's shriveled up and melted from the heat. My name tag is similar. The front of my shirt is still intact because I laid face down as I lay there waiting to die before I could feel that liquid, the back of me is burning, the backs of my legs. So when I get up, the best way to describe it is I am terribly indisposed. I have my leather belt on, the front of my shirt is intact, covered in blood, but I've got a burn line that runs along the back of the shoulder, back of the neck, and all the shirt and t-shirt the thighs and the calves of my pants are burned away. I did have some of, in the struggle to get up, some of my polyester at the knees melted into my skin. Um, mm. So I, I don't have any, that had to be grafted. And I have no hair there and because mm. uh, it was grafted because of the polyester melts to the, to the body. I staggered the hallway. And there are four men that come out of the B-ring door. The B-ring is the next to innermost ring. So you, again, you got five rings. I've come down from the E down to about the C. They came out of the B ring, not looking for me specifically, but but the plane cuts their office in half at the E, D, and C. The B ring wasn't penetrated, but they can see the damage. So they're going to try to, we got to go save people. There are four men, Bill McKinnon, Roy Wallace, John Davies, and Chuck Knobloch. And Bill and I had actually been to Command and General Staff College together at uh, Fort Leavenworth. We were classmates. Let me say that again. Classmates, not cellmates at Leavenworth. Okay. Uh, so, but, but uh, Roy is the first one to me. And in my exhaustion of covering 25, 30 yards in the condition I described, where I'm wearing 
belt, my leather shoes, and fragments of everything else. I am charred, plus the soot and the the darkness of the petroleum-based smoke. In my exhaustion of having covered that distance, and my relief of knowing that I'm about to subordinate myself to whatever decisions Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John make on my behalf. I collapse in front of Roy, just, you know, that just happy that I'm seeing somebody because had they not come out into the B-ring doors, the fire doors that seal off the, the corridors mm-hmm. had already been closed by the facilities managers. So had they not come out, I'm assuming I would have eventually gotten to the fire door and I would either wait for a fireman on the other side of that door to open it. I would either succumb to the smoke or my injuries had they not come through that B-ring door. This is not a place, Kevin and and Kyle, to to wait for medical care to get to me. They know they've got to move me because the fire's still burning, water's pouring out, but the fire, I mean, this is a petroleum fire and most sprinkler systems aren't designed to put a petroleum fire out. Mm-hmm. Foam is what you have to use to, to do that. They make the immediate decision to move me as hastily and as quickly as they can. They each grab a limb and give that first exertion to pick me up. And when they do, I don't come with them. They pull chunks off of me because mm. your, your flesh, when you're burned, it evaporates the liquid, which is the water in our bodies, what actually holds us together. Mm. The burns evaporate that out, leaving the mineral-based portions, you know, all the, mm-hmm. all the different yeah. of the periodic table of the elements uh, that the Lord mm-hmm. created with it. Mm-hmm. That's what's left. And it's like that paraffin treatment when you put your hand or whatever in the, in the pretty warm wax that the wax is, is melted. When you mm-hmm. pull it out and it cools off, when you take it off, it just peels right off. That's mm-hmm. how the flesh responds. And I'm screaming at them to put me down, put me down, leave me alone. And I know in my heart, I'm telling them to, to leave me there to die. Mm. And Chuck is the biggest of the four. Touching me is agonizing. Mm-hmm. But Chuck rolls me over on the left-hand side of my torso, forcibly puts his arms underneath the left side of my, my back side of my, my torso area. And of course, that's chunks coming off. But instead of grasping me, by the arms and the legs, where I've been burned on all that, they simply put their arms underneath my body using their arms that are connected, kind of like shaking hands at the, at the wrist, yeah. to let my body weight rest on their connected arms and shuffle mm-hmm. with me. They take me through a B-ring door into the A-ring and eventually at the intersection of the fifth and sixth quarters where they make that triangular point at the A-ring. They set me down. It becomes a hasty triage site, and I'll receive my first medical care from a great Air Force doctor named John Baxter. A wonderful lady from the Navy, Natalie Ogletree, will, will kneel down with her Bible. She's coming out. of. I mean, we practice chaos well, so mm-hmm. people coming down from the upper, upper floors, jumping. I mean, this is, this is not a sanitary area. This is, this is calamity. Everybody's getting out of the building. Dr. Baxter wasn't looking for me. He was just coming out of the Air Force flight surgeon's office on the fourth floor. I think it was the fourth floor. Came down, saw some of us gathered. He treats me first. He's got his go bag. It's a pretty rigorous first aid kit because it's got morphine in it. But hmm. he treats me first. And in all my years of training, you know, you always triage who's the most seriously injured. And that's who you treat first. 
that tells me, I mean, I'm trembling violently. Natalie just leads the Lord's Prayer with me together, the 23rd Psalm. She reads the 91st Psalm over me as Dr. Baxter to administer both an IV and a morphine shot. He takes my shoes off because the only clean flesh on my body that isn't burned or covered in in the, the soot and filth of the hallway is what's underneath at the top of my feet. And so he puts the morphine shot in the right foot, the IV in the left. And in the hallway, that struggle to survive seemed to last for forever. But even though it was about 45 to 50 minutes after I get to the where Dr. Baxter treats me, that time seems to just fly. Mm. I don't know why. It just, but it's like they set me down. Dr. Baxter speaks to me. Natalie's praying with me. They take my shoes off, put the stuff in the in my feet. They put me on the bodyboard. The little extended golf cart that acts as an ambulance. There are several of them in the building because it's a that's a huge building. So mm-hmm. it's like you know the days when they used to bring the relief pitcher in by the little golf cart from the bullpen. Yeah. Uh, except it's you know there's a there's a seat and then a gurney. They put me on that. Take me out to North Parking. I'm skipping over a lot here, but they take me mm-hmm. out to North Parking. I'm eventually put in the back of a Ford Expedition. And this is where the, the Lord's just putting everybody with the right skills at the right time, at the right place. Hmm. I'm placed in the back of that Ford. Joe Heisen is an Air Force nurse, happens to be out in the parking lot. She was there on her two weeks of annual training. She normally worked at, at Georgetown, but she was in the Pentagon doing her two weeks of annual uh, training based upon her work schedule to work in the clinic in the, in the Pentagon building. She hops in. She's holding my IV. One of my coworkers that I knew who happened to be out of the building didn't know it was me. But Dr. Baxter, when he administers the two syringes and the IV, he writes on a little toe tag my name because I'd spoken with him, told him who I was, my name. And that's how Bill McKinnon knew it was me. Even though I knew Bill, Bill doesn't know it's me, my colleague at, at Fort Ludmore. Bill doesn't know it's me till I give Dr. Baxter my name. Wow. And then he's like, right. oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so Dr. Baxter writes that on my toe tag, puts it on my toe so that when John is helping load me off of that gurney into the because he just happened to be there. He loads it up, looks at the toe tag to hand it to, to Jill. And he's like, that's Colonel Birdwell. So he hops in the back with me. We get to Georgetown, and here's what's really the most miraculous, in my view, the Lord's directing everything. Mm-hmm. Because right after Flight 77 makes penetration at the Pentagon, shortly after that, inside the White House Situation Room, Vice President Cheney tells Secretary of Transportation Mineta to shut down all airspace in the United States. Yep. That includes medevac helicopters. So I'm going to go to Georgetown by vehicle. And I tease a bit that it wasn't a plane that nearly killed me. It was a ride in D.C. in the back of the huh. Ford Expedition. That nearly <laughs> killed me. Captain Wineland, who drove, was is somewhere on the NASCAR tour, I'm sure, at this point, um, <laughs> given his driving skills. But John's in the back with me. Jill's back there. I get to Georgetown and the burn unit in Washington is at the Washington Hospital Center. 
But the only place Jill knows how to get to is Georgetown. I'm the only casualty taken to Georgetown University Hospital. When I get there, Dr. DeSimone and the, and the team at triage, because when the, when the plane makes impact and, the, and Washington's been attacked, the hospital puts out there whatever the code is that says every available hand get to the emergency room. You know, it's the mass casualty, but this drill. Dr. DeSimone looks at me, says, I don't need to triage him, get him inside because he's, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a charbroiled human mm. in, in, in human form. Mm. Get him inside. Dr. Williams is the attending physician inside. He is the chief teaching surgeon because Georgetown's, Georgetown's hospital is a teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. As they wheel me inside, and I know, I don't know how long we have here, and I know I'm giving y'all a, a ton of detail. Oh, you're good. But I, I, if you need me to abbreviate, I'm, I'm happy to, but I want to get to this seminal moment. Before Dr. Williams arrived at Georgetown to be the instructing physician, he spent two years in a trauma fellowship at the Washington Hospital Center under the direction of Marion Jordan and James Jang. Dr. Jordan was the director of the burn unit at the Washington Hospital Center, had spent three decades plus specializing in burn burn care, and at the time was the president of the American Burn Association. The, hospital, the medical profession association for people that specialize in burn injuries. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of emergency room care, I've got, whether it's Walter Reed or Washington Hospital Center, Georgetown, Inova Fairfax, all those hospitals in Northern Virginia and D.C., I've got the third best burn doctor available to me. Mm. Dr. Williams, because normally in, a, in, a, in an emergency room, It's airway, breathing, and circulation. But because the weapon system used that day was aircraft, I'm not going to get moved till somewhere around 5 o'clock that afternoon. Mm. So instead of just doing airway, breathing, circulation, and then evacuate me to the Washington Hospital Center's burn unit, which is just a three-minute flight from Georgetown's helipad to Washington Hospital's helipad, I'll remain at Georgetown under Dr. Williams' care where he will do the very brutal things that have to happen to care for somebody who's been burned because y'all the a burn injury is absolutely painful. Mm-hmm. What has to be done to you medically to survive it is worse than the burn. Yep. Mm. And so Dr. Williams, it's like a, it's like a battle drill, you know, that there's voice commands, there's intensity, but there's no chaos in that emergency room. Commands are being given. You know, get this. In fact, uh, my wedding ring, you can see uh, uh, my wedding ring. My fingers look like blackened hot dogs extending from a burnt steak called my mm. my palm, you know, the, the from the fingers to the wrist area. Mm-hmm. Normally in a burn environment, whether it's a ring or a bracelet or a necklace, if that's the part of the body burned as the body swells yeah. and the jewelry doesn't swell. It becomes a tourniquet. And they'd spoken about cutting the jewelry off. What jewelry does he have on? And I didn't want to cut off. And look, there's no opportunity to talk to Mel here. Dr. Williams would eventually tell Mel when she eventually gets to the, to the hospital several hours later at r- around four o'clock that I was three to five minutes from respiratory arrest because I've got just gunk coming out of my lungs. 
breathing's difficult. And then speaking with Dr. Williams is very labored because my respiratory tract is, is burnt. My lungs are... So Dr. Williams comes to the left-hand side and I can... I'm looking through just slits in my eyes now because my, my face is so swollen. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, just barely see through, through what hasn't swollen yet. But I can see in Dr. Williams' eyes the intensity of what he's about to, to do and, and what he's telling me. He says, Colonel Birdwell, we're going to do the best that we possibly can for you. And I told him I wanted to do two things. I wanted first that the wedding ring to be taken off and give it to Mel and tell her that I loved her because I didn't want the ring destroyed and having to cut it off. And Judith Rogers, one of the nurses from the OBGYN department that had answered that all hands on deck call is in the emergency room. She's immediately to Dr. Williams' right and standing behind them, between them is Major Collison, who had gotten in the back of the vehicle with me. So Judith, with her gloved hand, reaches for the ring and, and the body melts long before gold does. And as my body has cooled, it has started to solidify and harden. You know, I'm not trying to be graphic, but that steak's really juicy right when you take it off the grill. But if you let it sit for a while, it's kind of tough. Yeah. Mm. The human body's the same. And Judith reaches for the ring. She gives it a slight tug and it degloves the the finger. Mm. Blood begins streaming out of the base of my hand. And I don't recall it hurting. And not because I'm some tough guy, but it's kind of like in that, just like in the hallway where I'm burning, but the real agony is the emotional and agony in the, of I'm dying. It's yeah. not, while burning hurts, that was far secondary to the, the knowing that I'm dying. In this case, it's, she took the ring off. I'm looking at John because I know I'm saying goodbye to my wife and my son through the symbolism of that wedding ring. And so whatever pain's associated with it, I I just don't remember it. Mm -hmm. I remember vividly looking at John and asking him to give it to Mel and John saying, yes, sir, I will. And then I asked for the chaplain. Chaplain Cirillo came to the right-hand side. I'm getting a little emotional here. Yeah. Um, Chaplain Cirillo comes to the right-hand side. And this was not, I'm about to pass. I'm not a person of faith. I don't know what my eternity is going to look like. It wasn't a, let me come up with the decision matrix of what faith I'm going to be as I step forward, make peace with my creator without really knowing what I'm doing. Right. So that this was at all. This mm-hmm. was Chaplain Cirillo. You know, I said, I know I'm going to be in, in eternity with the Lord. I just know that he's in charge. If you would just pray that prayer that recognizes who's really in charge in here. And she led that prayer that was, that was, Lord, if you've brought Brian here and under the care of, of you as the great physician and Dr. Williams and the team here in the emergency room, Brian survives, we'll salute that flag and we will move out with that mission. But if you've brought Brian here so that you will quietly and peacefully call him into eternity under the care of his fellow Americans, that we'll salute that flag too. And when that prayer's over with, it's not with the strength of a soldier, but it's the strength of my faith in the Lord that I, I know I'm at peace with where I'm going to be. And I turn to Dr. Williams and say, okay, let's get on with it. And the last thing I remember, and it is the most vivid thing I remember that day. 
I can feel them tilting my neck back, my head back, because they're about to intubate me. They put the the little nose cannules and the nose mask, and you know, and I'm looking at that thing, right? You know, I can see the the top of it because I know they're they're anesthetizing me, anesthetizing me, and this could be the last thing I see before I see the Lord. And I can feel a little bit of something going into the mouth. But I mean, they had to slam me with as badly damaged as my lungs were. I, I don't know how much anesthesia they had to give me to get me out that quickly. That would be the first of, I mean, that's bad and worse was coming. Mm. I don't want to be gratuitous, but at ICU, there were, if you're just sitting there, just counting the seconds and the minutes while you're conscious and just pleading for the Lord to, to finish it. Mm. My son, Matt, the hardest thing that, that, my service in the army ever asked of me was to say goodbye to my son under such duress and, and pain and circumstances. Matt comes in and because the Surgeon General of the Army had told Mel that wisely and how he said it, you know, as he asked, has Matt been up there to see his dad yet? And Mel said, no, he's not ready. And General Peake tells, tells Mel, you need to get Matthew up here to see his father as quickly as you can. And what he was intimating is the chance, I mean, my, my odds of survival were Without the Lord, nil, certainly with the Lord, very strong, but I won't bore you with the, how the calculations made, but I was expectant, and Matt comes to make that visit. I don't recall which day it was, but Matt makes that visit, and when that visit's over with, I've had the opportunity to say goodbye to my son. Okay, Lord, I'm finished. This is my it is finished moment. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Get it over with. Call me into eternity. Stop my pain. And the pain of Mel and Matt watching me endure this. You know, the Lord, uh, you know, he is your ultimate assignments officer. Yeah. And, you know, as uh, Romans 8.28, you know, uh, what man meant for evil, you know, the Lord brings good out of what man meant for evil. And while it was a long, long road, and there were still many, many difficult challenges ahead. Here we are 20 years later, and we're very blessed. You know, I've, Mel and I have gotten to see Matt graduate from high school and college and get married. And we've got two grandkids and we're, we got to move back to Texas and, you know, be retired from the military. And, and we ran a ministry for burn survivors for a number of years. And then, and then uh, the, the, you know, the Lord put it on our, our heart because you got to get not just the Lord's direction, but your wife's approval uh, to run <laughs> the political office. Um, Amen. Ran, ran for office and uh, been serving now for uh, just a smidgen over a decade. and. There's a lot of life left to be lived, and I get to see my grandkids grow up. And I don't know how to, I'll I'll end with this and then let's go to questions because I know y'all got a lot of questions. But before this event, I mean, look, I've had, you know, tough training or things that hurt, you know, I've Mm -hmm. never had anything this agonizing. I mean, I've been burned before when I was in Korea, but it was only on the leg. It was second degree. I mean, it hurt, but it wasn't on the scale of what I've just Mm -hmm. described. I mean, I knew what I was in for when I was. Mm going into that emergency room, but the gospel's description of the crucifixion before this event doesn't give you the appreciation for how agonizing what the Lord went through, particularly when he knew what he would endure for the eternity before creation and still came and was obedient to the Father. And having gone through this event gives Mel and I a much greater appreciation for 
what isn't written in scripture about the nature of that death. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the flogging, the, all that. And I only had a minute or two to think about my death. The Lord had all eternity to know and be omniscient of his, mm-hmm. of the death he was going to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how hard it was in having known the perfection of heaven with God the Father and himself to be separated for that just for three days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the, the movie Passion of the Christ came out, I've never seen the whole thing. You know, it's Hollywood, but it's so visual, I've never watched it because that is too intense a memory, even though that's not how I was treated. Mm-hmm. That is too intense a memory to, to watch that movie. Sure, sure. You know, it's as you were talking about that there, about Jesus knowing it for eternity, it's crazy because, you know, we see that agony in the garden where he's praying. He's like, man, if, if there's anything, you know, is there a way to get past this? You know, like, can I not do this? You know, and I think sometimes we, you know, just in, I mean, I'm saying this because you brought it up and I think it's such a great point. I think so often we focused, we, we don't focus on that particular part of his humanity coming out and just being like, I, if there's a way to get out of this. Can I get out of it? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, God knows God, God knows even in our lives, you know, if, if God would have said to you, Brian, here, here's how your life's going to go. You know, how n- most of us, whatever the tragedies and the things that we went through, we would have, ne- we would have said no. Right. But the impact that we have because of those things, we would have probably never had, had we not went through those things, right? And so, you know, I just, man, I'm just sitting there listening to your story, and I just, and I think most people, anybody that's listening to this would just go, I don't even know how I would survive that for a nanosecond, let alone the hours and the days and the months and the years that you've had to go through all of this with the surgeries. And I was reading in your bio, I mean, 39 surgeries, like, you know, and, and I think the listeners, you know, would say, would, would want to know, how are you now? Like, are you, yeah. you know, how are you now? Yeah, pretty good for a guy got run over by a 757. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, Dr. Jordan told me that, that I, I really have had about 10 years taken off my life. So I've had, uh, you know, cataracts, had to get the, you know, the implants to fix that. I've had shoulder surgery. I, I ruptured the L5S1. These are things that aren't related to September 11th, but I'm 59 and I'm going through things that are normal, but about say seven, eight, maybe 10 years than I should. Mm. Uh, I'm not trying to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy from Dr. Jordan, but I really am doing well. But staircases. I try to do them, but my lung injury is such that when I first got elected and did stairs in the Capitol, I was doing okay. I mostly use elevators now. I will do the Mm -hmm. stairs, but my thighs, you know, calves are kind of, hey, you know, we really don't like doing this. You know, after the third or fourth flight, I can go downstairs, but going up, you know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't high school when coach made you run the bleachers in the stadium, you know, Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, I really am doing well, 
The day will come again because of my inhalation injury. I'll be on an oxygen tank. You know, like, I mean, I've got the lungs of a 20 year smoker without ever having had a cigarette. And so mm-hmm. those types of things will manifest themselves. I have range of motion limitations, but I'm very functional. Sure. I don't have the, I don't have a lot of upper body strength, you know, cause my arms are, are, you know, I did lose a lot of tissue besides just the, it, and it's kind of, people ask, what's it like? It's kind of like with the graphs I have, it's kind of like wearing Playtex living gloves all day. And mm-hmm. on a hot day, it's really tacky, sticky kind of thing. Sure. Sure. But, you know, given what the Lord went through, and then there's guys that when, when we ran our ministry for burn survivors, I've met the, the guys that don't have an arm or don't have a leg, that uh, the, the price they paid, there was one young man, Merlin German, you know, 39 surgeries, and now I'm up to 51 with the other things from the normal aging process. But there was one young man that had over 140. Uh, Merlin was a 97% total body burn in previous wars, would never have survived the, the event on the battlefield, let alone the evacuation process. Got back to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, the military's burn unit, was in ICU for nine months and hospitalized for three years mm. uh, before the Lord called him. And when the lady that's our, our point of contact at the time at the hospital called us to let us know that they lost Merlin in the operating room, I mean, I just, Mel and I just had a whale of a cry. Mm. And it's like, Lord, why did you let him endure all this? And I, and I think, I think the Lord's reasons were every time somebody that came in that was burned like me, lesser, greater, and is going through physical therapy or whatever, when they're looking down that table and they see Merlin down there for that three years he was there, they're all going, I don't have anything to complain about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work it, but if he can do it, I can do it. And Merlin mm-hmm. was that encouragement. But it, it hurts to see, you know, our fellow soldiers suffer. Yeah. But that's the cost of maintaining freedom, whether it's yeah. my physical scars for our national freedom or the Lord's. Because remember, after resurrection in his glorified body, Thomas sees the scars. Yeah. So we'll see the Lord's scars, not as a reminder of our earthly freedom, but we'll see them in eternity with them as our reminder of our eternal freedom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I'm glad you touched on the internal freedom part, because hearing your story, I couldn't imagine ever, ever thinking there'd be a sense of peace in any of that. But you talk about how you, you have this conversation with Lord, I'm coming to see you. And it's almost as if when you've surrendered to that, you felt like you, you even said it, like you were a little impatient over that. I yeah. guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of alludes to that peace that surpasses all understanding. Is, is almost like the confidence in knowing your eternal focus and your eternal resting place. No matter what we're going through here, if you have that eternal focus, all of a sudden certain things, be, even, I mean, for you, I mean, in the midst of your death, that even seemed to shrink because you knew where your eternal resting place was going to be. And so yeah. um, it's just, it's, it's different when you hear it from a life and death standpoint versus an emotional trauma standpoint. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it was culminating in that in that moment. Right. Exactly what you're getting at, Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, was there a journey for you mentally? I mean, you, you hear a lot about now anxiety, depression. You know, we've talked about it on our show, PTSD, those type of things. 
you know, was that something that you, you know, had to deal with? Like, did you know, the, with the flashbacks and all the things like how, how did you navigate through that? Well, the, the closer to the event, the more often I would have a, a nightmare and it, I always had something to do with, you know, I'm swimming in a pool, but the water's boiling. Um, mm-hmm. That type of, because it's a trauma to the brain as well. So, I mean, look, PTSD is real, but when I got out of ICU, that day was rough because the question of life or death mm-hmm. had been medically answered. Mm-hmm. In the ICU in a burn unit, the angel of death is standing in the corner because the body's reaction, organs shut down. I mean, it's your largest organ is your your skin, mm-hmm. and it is your first line of defense in your immune system. So when that is so massively compromised, I mean, I had staph pseudomosis. I mean, I had, I don't want to get graphic for the sake of graphic, but eventually they put maggots on me to clean clean the wounds. Mm. And boy, there's nothing that'll affirm for you the creation story in Genesis than to see the Lord's nastiest, if not his least creation do for me what Mm. two of the finest doctors in the country couldn't do. Mm. But when I got out of ICU, Mel and I had a, because now the emotional of I've survived, what's life look like and how do I provide for my family? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, my body is a train wreck. Mm-hmm. I'm not a vegetable, but what's life going to look like, you know, months, year, five years. Right. And that unknown was, was a good cry with Mel because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, you know, I'm the provider of the family and, and, and I can't provide. And so one of our pastors, Jack Elwood at Emmanuel Bible church there in Virginia and in, in Northern Virginia in Springfield came to me at, at, uh, to visit with me and in step down care, you know, you're doing physical therapy two a days. I mean, when you're getting a shot of Dilaudid, which is a highly refined opiate morphine based, it's mm. better painkiller than morphine. Mm-hmm. And you're getting one of those. I mean, that tells you what kind of physical therapy you're going through when you get a, an opioid two CC syringe to be able to endure the bending and the cranking when, I mean, that's, it's like trying to bend a cracker and expecting it to bend instead of break. Yeah. And except you're, you're feeling it. And he came into physical therapy one day and he's just like, you know, Brian, God doesn't waste our pain. And Pastor Elwood was that, that guy. And you, you guys will know this, that, that pastor on staff that you want, that mercy is not his spiritual gift. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, you know exactly you know, that, that comes across like Gunny Ermy, okay. As, as a pastor with, you know, listen, dirtbag, you are going to, you know, kinda, and, but in my, in my humanity, I mean, I certainly, I respected pastor. Elwood. he was my age, he was there to be an encouragement. And, and at first it was, it, it wasn't hurtful, but it wasn't encouraging until I thought about it and thought about it and started to see how the Lord was using this for his kingdom, his glory, what Mel and I had experienced. Sometimes that'd be months, years later. But I said, you know, kind of like I wasn't talking to my dad, but I was talking to my uncle where I could be assertive without being disrespectful. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be assertive to your dad, you know, but you can be assertive mm-hmm. to your to your uncle, you know, kind of like, right. well, that's kind of how I responded. And just 
you know, pastor, that doesn't do me a lot of good right now because all I'm in is pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it's burns or, and what has to be done to you is ghastly, but he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. The Lord doesn't waste our pain because what were the things that we did, whether it was encouraging other burn survivors or this experience and how much we love this country, how much I can appreciate and Malcolm and in telling this story that even though Matthew, Mark, Luke and John give a description of of the crucifixion, you know, in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and the the intensity of what that sacrifice looks like, Mm -hmm. the subordination to authority uh, that had I died that day, having my name inscribed at a headstone in Arlington National Cemetery is a great honor in the earthly sense, mm-hmm. but it means absolutely zero to your eternity. That's right. But Christ's death put my name in a far more important place mm. than a headstone at Arlington National Cemetery. And yes. I'm not being disrespectful no. to our, our Americans buried there. I mean, just 19 months ago, I was there before the pandemic began <laughs> and buried a, a third friend mm. at Arlington. Mm. And uh, that's a very revered place, mm-hmm. yeah. but it is in the it's revered in the earthly sense by our nation, but but in the spiritual sense, Christ's death was far more important for mm-hmm. reconciliation with the Holy Father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think, and before I ask you my last question, I think your story, Senator, really speaks to just so much. You know, we wake up every day, you know, we get angry about people cutting us off on the road. I mean, it just, when you hear stories like this, it just exposes our utter selfishness and self-centeredness and our lack of care for the life that God has given us. You know, we, we just, we're so careless with it. And, and, and I, I get it, you know, it, it's, it's humanity. That's how we are. You know, but it, it's so great. And I've said this before, and we've had other survivors of other things on. I've said, you know, there are those people who go through horrific things like you, and then they turn their back on God, or they, or they, they, you know, the enemy causes them to go, you know what, God, if you were good, this would have never happened to me. And all the, all the things that we say through our hurting humanity. But you're another example of someone who didn't allow that to drive you further from God, but it drew you and you learn from it closer to God. Right. And I, I, you're, you're absolutely, because what I pastor, what I've told people is said, well, I don't miss the physical injuries of September 11th and that physical pain intensity. What Mel and I do miss is how utterly dependent every hour we were on the Lord. I mean, when, when your breakfast meal is brought to you and there's a milk carton, like what you got when you were in third grade and you pray for the Lord to give you the ability to open it, to feed yourself, to go toilet on your own, Mm -hmm. you realize, I mean, it really is that, that poem, uh, uh, footprints in the sand where the Lord's carrying you. Yeah. And that's why from a Pastor Elwood was great walking me through how to respond with my faith, both in the physical and then what's the proper role and function of government as it relates to 
bearing the sword against the evil that mm-hmm. plotted, financed, and executed the death of 3,000 Americans. Forgiveness is my responsibility. It isn't my government's, you know. And right. so what's the, what's the relationship between proper role of the family, proper role of the church, proper role of government? And the Lord articulates those both in Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. And Pastor Elwood really helped hone or iron sharpens iron. I don't know that I was iron, but he certainly mm-hmm. was that mm-hmm. in helping me respond to this with the right perspective, both as a soldier, as a citizen, and as a believer. Yeah. And without Jack there, I mean, Pastor Elwood and Mel's encouragement, I mean, that's, you know, the wedding vows uh, are being lived when. You're in the in the restroom and your wife is having to do the paperwork. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't. I'm not trying to be gratuitous, but sure, sure. You know, I spent a good long period of time as a six foot infant, having yeah. to have a bedpan or a diaper changed, or it was not humiliating, but it was humbling. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow. Well, that, you know, just, uh, it just shows, it just, it shows who you married, you know, (laughs) you know, and and I would tell any young person like, you know, that is listening, you know, and we talk, we just got through, we had a a episode a little bit back about dating and, uh, but you know, you've got it out. I can say this the best way I can. You need to get you one like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, because truly, you know, when things, when life, you don't know what's going to happen in your life. She didn't sign up for that. Right. Yeah. But, but she did, she did sign up or she committed. And that was, that's so, so important. So just, just want to honor her for that. Um, yeah. In our last just couple minutes here, you know, because you're such a patriot, because you love our country, you've served our country well and continue to do it, you know. I want to ask you a question and, and, you know, because we, we care about our country. What do you feel is the biggest threat to our democracy today? Daniel Webster said it really well, former uh, statesman, son of founder Noah Webster, but where the, the dictionary is named after and, and such. He said, I, I'll paraphrase, but no external threat will ever destroy the United States, but it, our destruction, if it comes at all, will come from the internal, the inattention of the people to the cares of their government. I would submit to you, Pastor, that our political problems all stem from our foundational spiritual problem as a nation. It doesn't mean that we've been perfect throughout our history. Immediately after September 11th, there was a, a return to church, fear of God, mm-hmm. recognizing his place as the center of gravity and how we were founded. The roles and relationship, what I think makes, you talk about American exceptionalism a a lot in in the circles I run in. And look, our piece of dirt here is no different than the piece of dirt in the opposite time zone 12 hours away from us. Yeah. The Lord created that same dirt. Mm -hmm. What makes us different is that we got proper role and function, you know, when I, I'm sometimes I'm in high schools and they'll, you know, I'll have just some basic civics. How did we get the three branches of government? Mm-hmm. Well, that's just the three functions. I'm like, no, it is the three functions. But Isaiah, I think it's 33, 22, 
says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. The only person who's ever walked to this earth that could be trusted with all three functions of authority is the Lord Almighty. Mm. Otherwise, the founders understood that, nope, the executive, the king's over here, the lawgivers are over here, judges are over here, and how those branches interact, how we separated the functions of government between the federal government and the states. Now, much of this is metastasized into the federal government's become the be-all, end-all to everybody. They've become the provider of first resource, Mm -hmm. which isn't government's function, and it's not the federal government's level of function to be there. It has certain specified responsibilities. And as long as we've got pastors preaching and, and teaching those proper roles and functions of government, and then getting good people in government, there is a, I think it's in Judges, I'm scripturally literate, but I'm not uh, yeah. um, theology trained. Yeah. But I think it's in Judges where it says the the trees of the forest came to the to the vine and said, "Govern over us." Said, "No, I'm too busy making the grapes." They came to the fig tree. I'm too busy making the figs. And eventually, after three or four people, they come to the bramble and they say to the bramble, "Rule over us." Yeah. We need good people in elective office because, look, I'll, I will tell you that the, the thing that is most being in the political world, I'm not saying this is not a complaint, but it is it is difficult because one day somebody's a friend because of the, the they agree with you on this issue. And the next day they're not. I had a bill this go around. I worked with a representative. The next day they're killing one of my bills and you react in that human. Mm hmm. You know, what are you thinking? I mean, right. there's consequences to your decisions. Yeah. Because it, it has become so personalized. I mean, just look at cancel culture. Mm-hmm. The internet or f- social media make it easy to... I mean, there's an entire cottage industry when you first run for office that tells you how much you suck. Right, right. And, yeah. and then you, when you look at that, and then you think about the kind of courage the Lord had Mm-hmm. To stand firm to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, it's yes. the same political dynamic. Mm-hmm. Our spiritual problem of re—I mean, we need a third great awakening that re-energizes our churches. That re- you know that the Lord pours out His Spirit upon our nation to bring us back to His His foundational principles. That where we can disagree on things and not be it, each other's enemies. Mm-hmm. But the manner in which we look at things is from that biblical worldview of what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, to me, the greatest threat to our, because I, now that I'm a grandfather and I see what's happening in our country, I mean, I am very, very worried for the kind of country that, I know it's a sinful world, but I'm very worried about the kind of country that my grandson and granddaughter and my son and daughter-in-law are going to sure. sure. grow up in. Yeah, yeah. Very, very concerned. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's people like you who said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, and I'm going to uh, sacrifice a lot of things that you could be doing and you're serving our country, you know, and I, I encourage moms, dads, grandparents all over the country, you know, and I've said this on other shows is, you know, sometimes we push our kids, especially if we're Christian, we push our kids into ministry as we think ministry is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like be a pastor, be an evangelist, mm-hmm. be, you know, and all that's great. We need those. Yes. But we also have to understand 
that if your child comes to you and says, hey, you know, mom, dad, I really think I'm going to go and I want to be, a, 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 you know, an attorney or, you know, because sometimes that's a pathway for them to get into politics or they say, you know, I, I really like policy and writing law, you know, that type of thing. You know, don't dismiss it as something that's less than like we yeah. The, the country has, we've become what we've become because we have a lack of people in government who yeah. truly looks at Jesus Christ as the only answer, right? And, yeah. and, and, and we've, we've created all of these other answers. Yeah. And so, you know, my, I just admonish, you know, parents that have children to remind them that there is a, there is the fields are ripe also in the political world, right? Oh, you yeah. can go out and there's a harvest there, you know? Yeah. And so just appreciate you so much. Mm-hmm. And if you can, I want you guys to go out and I want you to get this book, go to Amazon. It's refined by fire, a family's triumph of love, faith, and it chronicles this whole life changing ordeal that they've went through. And and if you're in Texas, why don't you send Senator Birdwell just a, a thank you just for yeah. his service? Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, and I know sometimes we we <laughs> will email our senators and ask them for a bunch of things. But remember, they're working really hard. Uh, yeah. They're working super hard. And uh, I, I believe Senator Birdwell has just done such a great job for us. And uh, so, guys, again, if you're on an Apple device, if you can just scroll down, you just get ready to review us, share these episodes with your friends and make sure that you're reaching out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And Kyle, can you tell them where to find us? Yep. You can find us on social media. The Thinking Out Loud podcast is on Facebook under two names, Thinking Out Loud podcast. And then we also have a fan page, Thinking Out Loud podcast fans. Go on Instagram. It's Thinking Out Loud. It's thinking underscore out loud with just the LD spelling out loud. And again, on both of those You'll find our logo, the orange and blue logo with uh, Kevin and Kyle on it and a microphone. You can't miss us. On those pages, you will see episodes like this uh, promoted. So you'll know you're in the right spot. We're talking to Senator Birdwell today. You'll see his promotion days before it comes out so you know what we're talking about. These social media pages are for your interaction. If you would like to say something, leave a comment. We get an hour, hour and a half to talk about it, but we'd like to hear your thoughts on it as well and talk with you about it too. So you can find us in both of those places. All right. Well, well, let me say thank you for your encouragement. Uh, this was a refuel for me. Y'all were of service to me and an encouragement to me. I appreciate it because I, you know, in the political world, I mean, I'm dealing with challenges right now that, you know, and sure, you know, it's uh, when you get the book, it's a tough read. But Mel performed fabulously for me. You know, I got through this because of the Lord mm-hmm. and Mel. Yeah. And now I have something of a warped sense of humor. But, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a colonel who's original. He's not as much original recipe as I am extra crispy, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. But, oh, yeah. But, uh, but she was that bulldog for me that I needed. Like you said, get, get this one. You know, get yeah. one like this. Yeah, and, uh, it's told in a side by side. What I'm mm. doing, what she's dealing with. Occasionally, Matthew will be in there, and our son at the time at, at, at 12. And it's a great story of the Lord's grace. Just yeah. don't read it on a plane because the first few chapters describe what it's like. 
to live through a plane crash. Yeah. <laughs> Even though yeah. I wasn't on the plane. <laughs> right. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, well, folks, we, we again, we appreciate the senator for being on today. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening week after week. And so we will look forward to seeing you guys next week for the show. God bless you guys. We love you guys. Have a great week. <laughs>